0: Overdrive.
1: Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a motoring and transport program where the facts are important, but so is passion and opinion. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including 3D printing makes manufacturing of complex or limited number of parts possible. And we have a number of interviews. Rob Fraser chats about the Nissan Pathfinder. And Will Hagen gives a tribute to Ron Turanac, who was Sir Jack Brabham's partner in making world championship race cars. Ron has just passed away at the age of 95. And in quirky news, Brian Smith and I discuss the unusual case of the garage that got sawn in half. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. So let's get this program on the road. Here's the news. News. Volkswagen and the e-Classic company are converting much-loved older models to electric power. There is already an e Beetle and an electric version of the original microbus. Now the European Union Intellectual Property Office has received trademark applications for the e-Golf Classic, the e Carmen, and the e-Kubel, all filed by Volkswagen. The e-Golf is likely to be a version of the 1974 hatchback, the Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, now that was a 2 plus 2 sports coupe built between 1955 and 1974. There was even a convertible version. They have a small but passionate following. The first model had barely 20 kilowatts of power, so an electric motor should do much better. The Kubel suggests the Kublerwagen, a World War II military vehicle based on the Beetle platform. Kübelwagen is a contraction of Kubler sitzwagen, meaning bucket seat car. It had no door, so bucket seats prevented. Pre- it had no door, so bucket seats prevented passengers from falling out. While one arm of the Volkswagen Group is developing electric classic cars, another arm, Porsche, is developing technology that may help produce classic car parts to keep the old vehicles on the road in their original form. Porsche has been developing the 3D printing of car parts. This means that parts with complex designs and or requiring only small numbers can be made without a large-scale manufacturing process. The initial business case for this technology was to achieve improved performance. In the case of the 911 GT2 RS, the use of 3D printed pistons saw power increase by 22 kilowatts to a total of 540 kilowatts. Some manufacturers use 3D printing for a few components such as in seats but the American Zinger company that builds hypercars has used this to do away with tooling, assembly lines and all other expensive traditional automotive manufacturing processes. The Nissan Pathfinder large SUV has had a bit of an image problem over the years. The first model here in 1987 was a rough and tough four-wheel drive. Later it reinvented itself as a soft rotor best suited to carrying the kids. Now it has progressed to being a much better balanced car. Most of the variants use a 3.5 litre V6 petrol engine and a CVT gearbox, but there is also a hybrid powertrain for the more luxurious models. We drove the N-Trek version, which adds a lot of external bling. Black and silver 18-inch alloy wheels, black door handles, black roof rails, black licence plate trim, black front grille and black wheel arches. Clearly black is the new orange. With seven seats and some nice safety features, the Nissan Pathfinder ranges from just over $44,000 to just over $70,000 plus on-road costs. In the video cassette recorder fight of the 1980s, beta was a better technology, but ultimately VHS won the war. It seems that quantity rather than quality also applies to charging systems for electric cars. There are two mainstream systems, Chartamo is considered better than CCS. Nissan has been a long-term supporter of Chartermo, the beta of the charging world. But as we reported last week, Nissan has just announced its upcoming Aria crossover vehicle and it will shift to CCS charging. Japan wanted Chartermo, but in 2011, German and US car manufacturers agreed to go CCS and in 2017, the Hyundai group decided to standardise around CCS. This will mean that there is little likelihood of expanding the number of charter mode charging stations, and Nissan's bi-directional charging that distinguishes its LEAF electric vehicle from competitors currently depends on this technology. Tesla has its own separate system at the moment. Transport planners have learnt that a service is not just a train, bus or car trip, it is the whole of journey. That can include getting to the train station and access at the other end, getting from the car park station to your final destination or transferring from one service to another. Kia has realised that if they want to sell more electric vehicles, there is a benefit in assisting the whole trip. Kia has jointly funded a new startup with Code 42's Urban Mobility Operating System, a mobility platform which integrates autonomous vehicles and transport services including ride hailing, fleet management, demand responsive shuttle, and smart logistics. If you cannot drive your car from door to door because of restrictions or the cost of tolls, for example, this will allow you to identify and use a service that might include your car, a shuttle service and a train trip to your final destination. And that has been the news. Hey, Rob, the Nissan Pathfinder, mainstream but not boring in its looks, but they do have the N-Trek version. Now, you've driven the N-Trek Warrior Utility, that was to do with ruggedness and performance. Is the N-Trek with the Pathfinder performance or just looks?
2: Uh, It's all about bling, David. (laughs) It's all about bling.
1: I think black is the new orange. There's a whole pile of black and silver 18-inch alloy wheels, black styling accents, black door handles, black roof rails, black licence plate trim, black front grille. There's a trend here. Interior. It's got an 8-inch screen and a layout. Were you comfortable in it? You're a big lad.
2: I am, actually. There's, I would like a little bit more seat travel, which is often the case for me. But look, the seats are super soft leather. There, you know, there's electronic adjustments in. It. You can get yourself really comfortable. You now up front, there's there's pretty good, you know, sort of room for a bloke my size. Hmm. The dash and the instrument binnacle and you know, all that type of stuff is a good layout. It, it could do with a redesign and a, and a bit of an upgrade. But everything's there. It's just a bit old school.
1: Yeah, certainly the dials in front of the driver are nothing. Stylistic, they're more the traditional functional two round dials with some information in the middle. Boot space is not bad 453 litres with the rear seats. We're talking about a seven seater here, up over 1,300 with the rear seats folded down. And if you fold down both seats, you get 2,260 litres. So that's a reasonable amount of space, but you probably are fighting a bit to get into the third row. If you were a big fella.
2: A big fella can forget it, but can forget it in nearly all of these type of vehicles. But the actual, the third row seats are pretty comfortable compared to some of the other vehicles in the same category.
1: Tend to be a bit bench-like. The motor for most of the models is a 3.5 litre petrol V6, 202 kilowatts, 340 newton metres. Given that a lot of the diesels now are doing huge torque, the newton metres, 340... Is certainly not class leading.
2: No, look, it's not. The thing with this particular petrol engine is it's very smooth and it's easy to drive and it matches well to the transmission. So while it may not be as, you know, class leading in terms of performance figures, it actually translates into being fairly easy to drive on the road. It does true a little bit of fuel, though, I must admit that.
1: It's got some features. I'll tell you the one thing. It's not unique, but I just love, and that's a 360-degree overview camera in the model we had. It means then that when you put it up on the screen, you get the rear vision to see how far back you can go, but the overhead simulation shows you where the parking lines are, and I just found that wonderful. I try to line it up. I try to be as as accurate as I can. I still have to open the door and look down unless I've got this thing. Anything missing, it doesn't have Apple CarPlay and Android Auto.
2: Yeah, true. Look, but it's got, you know, Tri-Zone entertainment systems. It's got screens for the kids in the back.
1: You can still Bluetooth connect. Absolutely. I
2: think in the next iteration, it'll have the... Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. I think that's sort of becoming, like a lot of things, you know, a standard sort of feature that people are now expecting.
1: Good safety, uh, standard across the range, intelligent emergency braking, forward collision warning, blind spot warning, rear cross traffic alert as standard, and intelligent cruise control. So I think those factors across the board represent some good features with the car.
2: Again, it's, it's got almost everything that you want. It just needs a bit of a freshen up to, to bring it more in line with what, you know, the market's now expecting in terms of look and interior functionality.
1: We did mention it's a 3.5-litre V6 petrol. There is also a a 2.5-litre supercharged version with a hybrid uh, function to it as well. Uh, That's uh, a little bit more expensive. Pricing of the N-Trek. Now, the interesting thing about the N-Trek is that I, I think we saw in the utility, the Navara, it is the top of the range, Yes. It is the, the the one that is the be-all and end-all in terms of ruggedness as well as, I guess, bling as well. But with this, the n trek is actually not the top of the range, that you can get a TI, but not with the n trek and you can then go further and get the hybrid. The base model starts with the petrol engine at 44,200 and a bit. Plus on roads, and that's just a two-wheel drive. Well, how much you got to add? About three and a half thousand to get four-wheel drive out of it. Yep. The Entrek we had STL, which is pretty good, but uh, not quite as uh, luxurious as the top TI. That was sixty thousand six hundred and forty plus on roads.
2: And you top out at about uh, seventy-six odds, well, unless you drive away for about seventy-six thousand dollars for the two and a half litre hybrid ti
1: yeah seventy thousand listed plus on roads yes and which you yep. add around 10 percent is a typical figure so it hasn't sold well
2: i think it's it's underrated and i've always said that it's underrated and every time i've driven it i've enjoyed it driving it and and i don't i think if it had a diesel engine it might have a bit more of an attraction because if you look at most of the competitors other than say a kluger there's a diesel option as well so whether that they're missing out on a bit of that or I don't really know why it doesn't sell in better numbers than it does. It, it should. As I said, it's got everything you could possibly want in there for the family.
1: It could go further, and I think you're saying it deserves to go further.
2: Definitely, definitely.
1: All right, Rob. Thanks, mate. Good to talk to you.
2: Thanks, David. Talk to you later.
1: It's Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au and other sites that we uh, put our stuff out on talking about the Nissan Pathfinder large SUV. This is Overdrive, across Australia. A few years before his death, I spoke to Sir Jack Brabham. The obvious start was to get him reminiscing about the old days. To my surprise, he almost immediately said, you should speak to Ron Turanek. Ron had a long friendship with Brabham, who helped him no matter which team he was in and then held the official position of the design expert behind the cars that carried the Brabham name. It wasn't just a passing comment, a polite thank you. A few years before his death, I spoke to Sir Jack Brabham. The obvious start was to get him reminiscing about the old days. To my surprise, he almost immediately said, you should speak to Ron Turanac. Ron had a long friendship with Brabham who helped him no matter which team he was in and then held the official position of the design expert behind the cars that carried the Brabham name. It wasn't just a passing comment, a polite thank you thrown into a speech about yourself in the style often seen at the Oscars. It wasn't even a formal recommendation to broaden the research. Sir Jack's eyes lit up with enthusiasm. He seemed clear that he was saying that he felt any discussion of his career needed to consider his mate, and his mate deserved credit. Ron Turinac passed away recently at the age of 95. Someone who is close to motor racing and the characters behind the events is celebrated motoring journalist Will Hagen, who joins us now. Will, thank you very much for your time.
0: My pleasure, David.
1: Ron was a workaholic, very firm opinion, strong-willed, but reticent to speak. Was he easy to have a conversation with?
0: It was I had him at a lunch a little while ago and uh, he said, Oh, the sound's too loud or I can't hear it properly or something, you know. And he said, Look, Ron said of himself, and he, he saw it as a as a shortcoming of his. He said, I lack social skills. He never felt that he easily mixed with people. He was always looking to do some more work. In fact, when he was asked a little while ago what was the best car you ever designed? And he said, the next one. (laughs) He was a guy that just was committed, as you said in your intro. Um, And and this was the amazing thing about the guy, that he started competing in motor racing himself, as did Jack, uh, in the 1940s. In fact, when he was 16 years old, he'd read a book about the uh, auto unions and Mercedes-Benz of pre-war, and he knew nothing about car design. And he he thought, oh, a swing arm rear axle like they had with um, uh, leaf springs across, there'd be enough fr- friction in the leaf springs to uh, stop the axle lifting and for, for you to have a need for shock absorbers, for dampers. So he did that, and he said, uh, unfortunately, I rolled over and I needed 16 stitches in my face.
1: <laughs> well, you learn by experience.
0: You do. And as he said... If you don't learn from your mistakes, well, you're just not learning at all. Um, He was an equal partner with Jack. People say, oh, Jack won a championship building his own cars. No, he didn't. He had some input to the cars, which Ron Toranak designed and built and was an equal partner in that business of Brabham Racing that won two Drivers' Championships, one for Jack in 66, one for Denny Holm in 67, and two Constructors' Championships. Indeed... That's never been done and never will be done because of the complexity and specialization of various areas of motorsport these days. But uh, just an outstanding guy. And I'm sorry, but to look at it another way, in the 1940s and early 50s, he with his brother, Austin Lewis Toranac, who uh, headed Saab in Australia at one stage. And of course, it's Ron Austin Lewis Toranac that gave the name Ralph for the cars that he built in the 40s and 50s, but then later in the 70s, 80s, and into the 1990s. He just worked away at making these things, In as I say, in the early 1950s. Then Jack wins a world championship. He he decamps off to Europe in 1955 and wins the world championship in a Cooper in 1959, the first rear-engined or mid-engined racing car to win the championship and realises that a lot could be done to improve it. And he sends a letter to Ron, who'd been working with him back in Australia, and he says, look, I think we could improve the rear suspension, get rid of the transverse leaf spring, lower the car, use coil springs, and so on. And uh, Ron gets involved in that. So in 1960, in what became known as the Lowline Cooper, which the Cooper Car Company didn't want to do anything about, but which Jack and Ron Toronek, did plenty about and um, so within a space of less than 10 years he's gone from building specials in australia to helping a guy win a world championship i mean he was just remarkable he, he was just a very cautious person very methodical and i can remember him years ago telling me that a weld on a steering column on a race car broke he hadn't done the weld but one of his people had and he was absolutely mortified and he said, that's never, ever going to happen again. And when he got back into, his, into route cars later, and he became the world's biggest manufacturer of racing cars. He made 1,500 cars, and one year, he made 360. And everybody that was trying to get to Formula One, and many who did get to Formula One, were all driving routes.
1: He was also very good to customers, wasn't he? He he didn't build a good one for you and and also ran for me sort of thing. He he and he kept going back to customers to be helpful.
0: Absolutely yes. Uh, again, many customers have said, "Oh, well, you know, I was having trouble with that the car or looking for a bit more performance or something." And Ron had come along and look and say, "Oh, do this or have you checked that or whatever." And uh, they always were pleased with the, the advice that Ron gave. He was in Woking in Surrey. And uh, a guy from Australia, Larry Perkins, rolls up with a car and a trailer and says, uh, Hello, Ron, you know, what do you think of this? What should we do with it? And Ron looks over it and he says, Start again. <laughs> the short of it was Larry got rid of that, went to work for Ron, and they built the first route. RT1. Is that right? So the first car, yeah, the first car that Ron built in his rebirth of the Ralt company was for Australian Larry Perkins and it won the British Formula 3 Championship. He absolutely clean swept it, and <laughs> which wasn't a bad way to start your new business.
1: There's a lot of Australians like that, isn't there? Arthur Bishop and the steering column. Now, there's a lovely picture. To talk about it, not just in terms of hardcore business, but mateship as well. There's that lovely photo of Sir Jack and Ron Turanak sitting at the milk bar. How would you describe that? <laughs>
0: well, as you say, there's the centre table and the fixed benches on either side of it, and there's these two elderly guys looking at each other and uh, and discussing whatever, you know, <laughs> probably pointing to the way things were being done now in terms of cost and complexity and saying, gee, why do they go to all that trouble? Why can't they be smart?
1: It looked like two little mischievous boys who who weren't up to doing something wrong but were up to building a better billy cart. Every chance. You went to his 90th birthday. Was that a big event?
0: Oh, it was fabulous. Just fabulous. They had cars displayed outside. When you get... At a birthday party, you get messages from Ron Dennis, at that stage, one of the leading Formula One team owners of, in this case, McLaren, from Bernie Eccleston, people like that saying, happy birthday, Ron. I mean, just some of the top people in world motorsport saying, well done, have a great day. Oh, it was so special.
1: Sadly to be missed, Will, and uh, your contribution and understanding is greatly appreciated. Thanks very much for your time.
0: My pleasure. It really has been a pleasure. Thank you, David. And that's
1: Will Hagen. And we were talking about Ron Turanac. If you look at the name on Brabham's cars, that they were BT and a number, and the T, of course, stood for Turanac, and it stood for a mateship, a friendship, an understanding that brought Sir Jack great fame and great credibility to those who know to his designer, Ron Sidney Turanek. Will Hagen's reminisces covered a wide range of subject matter with great detail and personal reflections. The full interview has been loaded onto the Driven Media website. That's drivenmedia.com.au You're listening to Overdrive. And it's Quirky News time, and joining us once again is Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. What have you got for us? Well, um, you might have studied Robert Frost's poetry in high
3: school or university, and his his famous poem, Mending Wall, ends with the lines, Good fences make good neighbours. So we've got a story out of uh, Maine in the US, where a bit of a boundary dispute resulted in someone having their garage sawn in half. (laughs) sorry as a couple of families have been living uh side by side in uh in separate houses um and uh one they got on quite well until one old fella in the house died and and some of his relatives came to live and became a little pesky about whose property was what property so the the neighbour engaged a surveyor who came and found that the property line actually ran down the middle of the neighbour's driveway and through the garage. And so they couldn't come to a a comfortable agreement. Um, So basically, uh, the neighbour erected a fence and then arranged for someone to come and actually saw the neighbour's garage completely in half where it had straddled onto his property um, unbeknownst. So possibly always check your your fences and, more importantly, um, have a good relationship with your neighbour.
1: It would have been even more impressive if there had been a car in the garage as well. Uh, yes, I think by the time they cut it, the,
3: um, the people living in the house, the tenants, I believe, um, had moved away because there was a lot of this uh, friction going on with the owners, but the tenants were moved out, mm. uh, and the um, the garage was uh, was empty at the time. Interestingly, the people who uh, whose garage was sawn in half, the kind of um, the antagonists in the story, had asked for permission to remove some material out of there, and then when they went in, they just basically trashed everything and and broke stuff, but. Interestingly, um, they were able to find a, a contractor, the, the first people, um, with a tool called a sawzall, which would basically, you know, you, allows you to just basically saw things, big things in half. So, so Marvel's picture showing sort of half of the garage standing, and the rest in pieces.
1: <laughs> if they had have had a car inside, they could have made that nineteen eighty six movie Malcolm car that split in two that ran along the train tra- the
3: tram tracks. Well done, David. What an
1: obscure reference. Very good. (laughs) We we think of anything here. Anyway, the mending wall is, of course, Robert Frost, one of his, as I think you've quoted, something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen (laughs) groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast.
3: And so Frost is talking about... uh, you know he 's got an orchard, and his neighbor has uh, has some pine trees and the neighbor desperately wants to build a big stone wall and uh, and Frost is trying to explain well what 's the point of the wall you know uh, my my apples aren 't going to come and you know cut down your pine trees uh, but the the neighbor just uh, just stoically continues to build the wall, saying good fences make good neighbors and of course uh, the uh, the people the people who uh, who managed to, to cut the neighbours' garage in, in half. Uh, they said, we're putting up a fence. Fences make good neighbours. That's what we've learned from this.
1: <laughs> well, of course, putting up walls is uh, often uh, based on mythologies and hype and a range of things, I think we would have to say, is a reflection of recent events. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch you up next week. Thanks, mate. See ya. And that was Brian Smith, and here we are on Overdrive where we talk serious and not so serious stories. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rob Fraser, Will Hagen, Brian Smith, and Paul Just for their great help with this program Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network For more information go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook site Overdrive City. I'm David Brown Thanks for listening